Taking you inside the world of music, this is Inside Music Cast with Rick Such and Eddie Cabello. On this episode, Inside Music Cast welcomes Tommy Sims. Welcome to Inside Music Cast, a podcast devoted to musicians, fans, and the people that make music happen. I'm Rick Such. And I'm Eddie Cabello. Welcome, everybody, from around the world. And as Rick mentioned, Inside Music Cast is devoted to bringing you candid interviews, news, and information with the musicians, fans, and people that make music happen. That's right. This is the podcast that goes beyond the pop star and features the talent behind the talent. So if you're ready, let's get started. Making it in the music business requires a lot of talent, perseverance, and luck, especially if you're a young musician. But for Chicago-born bassist Tommy Sims, it was top-quality music-making that unlocked the door of opportunity. His first break came at the age of 23 when Bruce Springsteen, who had heard of Tommy's talent, called and asked if he would jam with the band. One day turned to three, and finally he was asked to join the band. After his education with Springsteen, Sims gained respect as a premier songwriter by co-writing the Grammy Award-winning Change the World for Eric Clapton and Babyface. It went on to win Song of the Year and Record of the Year in the Grammys for 1997. His writing, producing, and skill as a musician have brought him to work with a variety of soul, country, gospel, funk, and rock artists. Here's a short list. Bonnie Raitt, Kenny Loggins, Joan Osborne, The Newsboys, The Neville Brothers, Michael McDonald, Michael W. Smith, Trisha Yearwood, Amy Grant, and the list goes on and on. Inside MusicCast is pleased to welcome Tommy Sims. Tommy, thanks for joining us. Thank you, sir. Hey, listen, I just want to start off, uh, when, I, when I look at, um, you know, your discography, I really see a diversity of work that you've worked on that's almost, uh, it, it, it's in- incredibly mature. It's, uh, I mean, you have a knack for, you know, for music from a very young age, but now that you've grown into a producer and, uh, and a writer and so forth, you know, as the world of, of producing uh, around you, how have you become acclimated over the years to where you are now? Well, that's that's a good question. Uh, and, you know, I I think it's probably the uh, maybe I'm the anti-producer guy or something. Mm-hmm. You know, I I think I don't fit, and by way of not fitting, I've I've strangely enough been able to find a little place and a little niche for you know the type of stuff I I I guess now I'm considered as doing. I, I sort of never put a typecast on myself but Mm -hmm. i guess it's just the nature of the business you know that you know after so many years uh everybody gets typecasted you know in 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 some fashion or form so i I guess the the uh, notion out there uh perhaps might be that i do a certain type of music and so you know it's just created a little bit of a niche for me but but you know i clearly i i don't you know admittedly i don't fit you know in in today's uh, producers mold. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, when um, you know, in in looking at a lot of your work, I see tons of of R and B. I mean, you love the the folk essence, and you've you know, your career has really taken you pretty deep into different genres of uh, of of music. You know, and uh, and I sort of agree with you that that I can't I can't really. F- figure out a certain strength where you can be pigeonholed. But I do see one thing, you know, in looking at your career is uh, an overwhelming dedication where a CCM or gospel music, it seems to weave in and out of your career. Address that a little bit for us. Yeah, well, it's, you know, career-wise, it's, it's I guess it's professionally where I started. So, you mm-hmm. know, uh, but just, you know, uh, from a from a, uh, a background point of view, I'm, I'm 
definitely, uh, you know, kind of a homegrown Christian boy, you know, uh, you know grew up in first south side Chicago, and then, and then we, you know, sort of migrated about an hour and a half to Michigan, mm-hmm. and uh, always uh, there was the, uh, the basis of God and family in my background, and so, you know, that thread just always ran through, through my music, even when I started writing songs when I was a kid, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, I was not necessarily writing religious music, but it always, the, the music I was writing always had that sort of a, I guess, uh, sort of overtone to it, you know, mm-hmm. where, where, you know, I, I found it very hard to write meaningless dance records, although <laughs> I enjoy meaningless dance records as much as anybody. Right. Uh, I found it very hard to sort of just go there naturally, you know. Seems like I was always, you know, uh, and, I, and I've always been a fan of those writers, you know, right. Stevie Wonders and the, you know, Richie Havens of the world, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the writers and the, the musicians who were, I guess, always trying to both speak to and speak for a generation, you know, and, and so, you know, I, I guess I started out on that path uh, mm-hmm. uh, sort of naively, you know, thinking I, I might be able to become... Uh, that kind of writer, and, and so the thread has always been there, the, the spiritual thread, the, the religious thread, but not religion, you know, so much as just the spiritual thread. I, mm-hmm. guess, you know. I think our second episode of Inside Music Cast, we interviewed a friend of yours, uh, Keith Thomas. And, oh, yeah, uh, man. He has his uh, musical beginnings playing with uh, his family's gospel group, and, you know, that's where he got his start, and it seems like a, a lot of the Nashville Cats have had a start in church. yeah. It's sort of a, you know, a, but it seems like a lot of music people uh, in general, mm-hmm. uh, I'm finding even with this younger crop of uh, singers uh, and, and, and musicians, uh, that same thread seems to still uh, still be there, you know, which is, a, I think, a beautiful thing, you know. I think, I think that's a, church is an outlet, you know, for, yeah. uh, it gives anybody who has musical aspirations a chance to get up and play and perform in front of people. Yeah, and I think for young musicians now, uh, it might be the only, it might be one of the last vestiges, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's true. You know, there's not really the, there's not really the jazz band in, at the high school level or the, you know. Right. Uh, you know, the jazz combo or, I mean, I, I was sort of at the end of all of that. In fact, I was a, you know, I was a senior, and my brother was a, a freshman when I was a senior. And by the time he was a senior, and I was, you know, three years gone, they'd completely wiped away the the entire, uh, I guess, sort of extra curriculum of yeah. of music in the school that I was, the high school that we went to. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, if you didn't play in marching band, Right. Uh, there was no use for you as a musician uh, mm-hmm. anymore. If you played guitar or you played drums, you know, trap set or any of that stuff, it was just done, you know. And, and that's happening, you know, all across the country, though. And, and yeah. a lot of, especially a lot of inner city uh, school systems, they just can't afford it. They just simply can't afford to have that. And I know that there's, I can't remember the name of the, the organization, but there's a there's an organization that a, a lot of, you know, high-profile musicians are involved in. That Yeah, absolutely. Had, well, there's, there's music. First, and there's yeah. uh, VH1 Save the Music. That's it, Save the Music, yeah. Uh, which, which we do a lot of work with, you uh-huh. know, and it's sort of one of our uh, pet projects because of it, you know. Mm-hmm. Now, 20 years down the line, it's, you know, I, I, I actually, you know, 
20 years ago when, when it was happening on a sort of small town level, I, I actually thought, well, you know, there's no way the, the Chicago's of the world and the Houston's of the world and the L.A.'s of the world, there's no way that the programs will, will, will completely be dissipated. But here we are, man. I mean, that's, you know, you're hard put to find a, a quality music program in a high school yeah. in 2007. Mm-hmm. You know, so... I could be wrong, but it sounds like you're in a studio right now. We are. I'm, I'm uh, just just closing my office door here. To try to... Hey, uh, music has been in your blood from a, a very early age, right? And, and you learned to play bass, uh, guitar, and, and drums pretty quickly, right? Yeah, I guess, you know, uh, I never got really good at it, but I started in on it all pretty quick, you know, mm-hmm. right, right in succession uh, around age 11. Started with... Uh, I started with drums around eight years old, eight uh-huh. or nine years old, and, and then my little brother got in, in, in interested in drums and quickly excelled at it a lot faster than me, so I sort of gave it up pretty quick and, mm-hmm. and uh, started in on bass guitar and went to you know regular guitar from there. And uh, I guess somewhere around 14 or so, 14, 15, got into trying to learn to play keyboards. And, you know, all of these things were really... For me, just a function of, I always wanted to write songs. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I thought, well, you know, the best way to convey my ideas would be to learn these instruments. Right. You know, I, I don't consider myself to have ever gotten to be amazing at any of them, but I can get around enough, you know. Yeah, well, it's nice to, to have write. that foundation of knowing a little bit about everything so you can, you know, compose and, and conceive songs on your own and... and uh, be able to lay all that stuff down. Yeah, it helps. Yeah. Hey, listen, I've got a question. Um, you know, after you, you, you grew up and uh, you were in college, you went to, um, I believe you started off in western Michigan, then you went over to uh, to the other side of the state at, at U of M. Yeah. And you studied and you eventually worked your uh, your way into the Nashville scene before you headed on to L.A. But uh, I'm curious about the early days. Once you did arrive in Nashville, did you venture there on, on your own? What what pulled you to Nashville at that time? Uh, some friends of mine who who'd, uh spent some time here, you mm-hmm. know, uh, had been telling me about it and telling me about, you know, the music scene here. Uh, I guess that was, you know, that was sort of the the, the initial introduction to the city. Right. I came here and spent a couple of weeks here. A friend of mine in a band uh, down in uh, Mississippi, there were three brothers in a, in a Christian rock band called David and the Giants. This is going way back. Oh my goodness! That, that's uh, the Huff guys. The Huff brothers, yeah, you know those about guys. those guys, yeah. Uh-huh. Great, great band, man. I mean, I mean, you know, uh, you know, at, at the time they were doing it, you know, there was hardly anybody as authentic as as they were. You know, you know what? <laughs> this is going to sound funny, but I, I, the only, one of the only caveats I I have of this band called David and the Giants, of which I probably have some really old vinyl records somewhere, is that their drummer, uh, if I'm correct, he was uh, Little Ricky. He um, was, in he, fact. Yeah, his yeah. last name was Thibodeau. Yeah, and this Thibodeau. Guy, yeah. That's right. Remember that? Oh, yeah. And oh, yeah. He, he was actually Little Ricky on the on the I Love Lucy show. He, okay. he played he Little Ricky, up. played uh, <laughs> Lucille Ball and Desi yeah. Arnaz's son on the show. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, whenever he was playing the skins on, on the TV show, it was for real. It was know? for real. He wow. was... Uh, he was destined to be a drummer. So you hooked up about uh, with them. Can continue. I'm sorry for the interruption. No problem. Yeah. So, I mean, that was, you know, that that was my first, you know, sort of 
exposure to a, a, a real sort of high professional situation, you know, because they were they were, uh, you know, touring the country and and man had the sound and the lights and the and the audience to go along with right. it and and, and uh, they were they were really really tight sort of you know southern soul band almost if you will more yeah, so yeah. than a rock although they came from the rock uh standpoint you know mm-hmm. they they had a lot of that that southern soul thing like the almond brothers and yeah. and different southern bands you know uh so i was really drawn to those guys i was really kind of mesmerized by them uh and probably be you know just well i have to say i have to say this uh just about the personalities uh the, the guys in the band are just some of the nicest guys, but some of the truest guys uh, that that you'd ever meet. Now, now I can say that now, you know, twenty mm-hmm. something years down the line, uh, and and having met many, many, many musicians and and, and performers, still to this day, those those guys are the high mark mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to just uh, just human being. Right. Uh-huh. Did you ever collaborate with them along? I mean, what happened? Uh, we did. We, we, I got to make a record with them. I guess it was might have been their second or third, uh, you know, Christian major label record uh, uh-huh. that they made. Um, and I got to work with them on that project, and then we worked on a you know, couple of other projects after that. So, so we did get to do some collaborating early on, you know, and this is... This was this was still before I got to Nashville, but those guys talked me into coming here, and uh, David in particular talked me into coming here and auditioning for another Christian rock band called Whiteheart. And uh, so, you know, that was that was probably the, the, the singular catalyst to getting me to Nashville because mm-hmm. what I really wanted out of life was to was for David to ask me to join their band. Right. I, I was really mesmerized by their band, and I had hoped someday I might work myself into a position, but right. that, that didn't happen. So I, I, you know, it's funny, you know, the, the way things turn out. I, I wound up coming here because I couldn't get in that band, and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, playing in, uh, in in a Christian rock band here, and and that was a great experience. That was a, was that your first connection with um, now producer and pretty. Heavy producer in the country industry is uh, Dan Huff, right? That was, yeah, that Whiteheart, because that was that was yeah. the beginning of uh, his his career, pretty much right around that time. Right, absolutely. Yep, Dan began in that band, and uh, you know a lot of great musicians and, and, and writers came out of that band, and and Dan was one of them. Gordon Kennedy was another, and mm-hmm. and, uh, and so that was my uh, introduction. And through those guys, it really sort of you know I got introduced to the Nashville music community you know the first year or two that i was here uh you know they just sort of you know were kind enough to take me around mm-hmm. and, and, and introduce me to everybody you know basically yeah. they 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 they'd written and and done sessions and you know all kinds of things for for you know basically any any and everybody making music in nashville had, right. had touched some member in that band mm-hmm. uh at some point and so i i, I got a real solid, firm introduction into the national music scene through those guys. Well, it seemed as if right around the 85 in those areas, I mean, what you're talking about is one little, one span of time that where I thought 
boy, I tell you, CCM music, I mean, you know, contemporary Christian music, I mean, it was really pumping out some major artists. I mean, it was, you know, you had Amy Grant, CC Winans, you know, Michael W. Smith was coming around, and, and a lot of those names actually did a lot of crossover work also. Yeah, absolutely. I feel personally that this was a major rooting time where the influence of CCM was probably stronger than it's ever been. I mean, that that's my opinion. But, you know, Charlie Peacock and and those guys, uh, Chris Eaton, I mean, they were pretty much powerhouses back then, right? It, there were. There were, you know, there were uh, just a, um, an array of amazing musicians, writers, uh, singers, performers, you know. Uh, it was. It was a I think a heady time for Christian music because it was sort of growing up, you know. It was sort of coming out of the complete sort of independent, you know. You know, for a long time, it was just an indie thing, you know. Mm -hmm. It was very much an industry unto itself and very independent, you know. No affiliation with major labels. and uh, Even the major, major Christian artists uh, still weren't affiliated with Christian labels until around that time that you're talking about, Mm -hmm. you know, when when artists like Amy Grant and, and Russ Taff and, Different artists started mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. break out and have so much success that the, all, all of a sudden the major labels started sort of peeking around and mm-hmm. going, "Hey, you know what's going on over here? You know how's this? How are these? How are these people over here selling a million, right? Two million units, and, sure. and we have acts we can't break. You know, <laughs> um, that was the door. I, I guess you know, being pried open. Just you know, to say that it was you know the zenith. You know, I'm not sure, only because I'm not as involved in in Christian music now Mm -hmm. as I was then. Uh, But just peripherally, you know, it it looks like, whereas that may have been a time where these doors started to open, you know, now there seems to be, you know, quite a few Christian artists capable of selling those, moving those kinds of units and ultimately impacting those uh, numbers, you know, of people out there, you know. You got you got the Switchfoots and the PODs, and right. you know you got all these great bands and, and great artists. You know who are the sky is possibly the the, the limit for them now. Right, exactly. You know, there's not that ceiling anymore. You know, back in the early '90s, you, you started like an LA commute, and you were, and you were producing for uh, Don Gaiman. And uh, during those two years, uh, what and, and who were you writing for that, during that time? Yeah, really. We were, you know, we did a whole slew of Australian projects, strangely enough. Uh, And I don't know how that, I'm trying to think of, you know, why that was, but Uh I think maybe Don had had some success with with an Australian artist, and so it really kicked open the Australian market to him. Hmm. Uh, Who were some of those Australian artists? There were, uh, you know, we worked with a band called The Divinals, uh, a band called Moon Crash Opera, the Finn Brothers uh, from, you know, the Crowded House. Jimmy Barnes was probably Mm -hmm. one of the biggest Australian, in Australia, one of the biggest artists there. Uh, Mm -hmm. Another young kid, uh, struggling to remember his name. Uh, At the time, he was just going by Diesel or Johnny Diesel. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, but yeah, it was a you know it was sort of like all these different bands, and you know we I, I remember we worked on records seemingly for two straight years that that did not come out in America, but were smashes in Australia. Really, it was an odd sort of <laughs> you know thing. It was like, uh-huh. And why would that be? Why what uh, you know what as far as you 
No, in working with with Don and, and of course, you know, these Australian bands, why would something hit Australia and not be palatable here? I mean, I mean, you're an American writer, whatever. What 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 goes? How do you write for someone in Australia? And you follow me? You know, musically, it's no different. Uh, it's all business related. You know, it's all sort of, and that's the mystery of, and that's the oxymoron of of, of the music business. It still exists today you know where i'll go to europe and and, and there will be you know six records in the top 10 that never ever see our shores you know mm-hmm. um and and won't ever see our shores unless unless you know some kids happen to be uh visit visiting europe and, and bring the record back over to share with their friends but yeah. in terms of a business plan for them uh you know there's always there's, there's already this sort of business plan at the record label you know capital records in america you know uh is not planning to do business with capital records in the uk on a particular artist right. i don't know why that is uh, you know it to me it seems really really sort of dumb you know <laughs> and, and, and sort of like bad business sense you know mm-hmm. that you know uh Australia wouldn't do business with, you know, America, or, or America won't do business with the UK, uh, and it's all the same company, you know. Right. But there's these, you know, there's just this very sort of territorial thing, you know, uh, and and you know, it it just exists, uh, and there's no explanation for it other than, you know, that's the business model that's been in place right. for so long, you know. But but it happens. I mean it. It still happens, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. you'll have, and, and of course, you, you've got the records that, that do cross over everywhere, and that's why people consider those to be such big smashes, because right. if a record, you know, actually breaks through that sort of, and I think it's ego, quite honestly. I, I think it's, I think it's uh, you know, just prideful men saying, you know, that artist didn't originate with us, so we're not going to put our (laughs) weight and muscle behind that act. Mm -hmm. We've got our own acts over here that we're trying to shepherd Mm -hmm. and put weight and muscle behind. And by the way, you know, we're going to be coming to you in about six months to promote our act in your country, but we're not going to, you know, we're not really going to pay too much attention to your act. That's right, yeah. So, you know, it's just this sort of weird sort of, thing of, 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 you know, guys flexing, you know, uh, <laughs> but at the most ridiculous level, you know, the multi-gazillion dollar business level, you right. know, but, you know, when you do see an act like a Korean Bailey Ray or a James Blunt, or, you know, when you do see an act that, that crosses uh, over into, uh, you know, the American market from the UK or, mm-hmm. or vice versa, right. that's one of those things where, for whatever reason, it, it they, they were able to come together on it and, and, you know, felt like it was a big enough uh, priority to do so. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, was it during this time that you were working with Don that you were initially contacted by Bruce Springsteen? It was, yeah. How was it? You know, literally uh, during, uh, you know, one of our sessions with, I think, the Divinals, uh, who, you know, uh, we'd made a record with. Uh, that that did uh, have a, a little bit of an American impact. And mm-hmm. We were making the second record, and um, the engineer and I were trading uh, just you know prankster uh, posted notes with each other every day. <laughs> and, you know, one day he'd post a note up uh, that 
you know, that said I had a message in the front office from whoever, you know, right, uh, right. You know, Eddie Money, or you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I'd the next day I'd try to one up him, you know, hey, well, you've got a message from Princess Di, you know, and, and <laughs> we were going back and forth with these ridiculous messages, and and uh, you know, one day I, I walk in and there's a posted note on the studio door. There's a message from a gal, I can't remember her name, I think Debbie Gold or something like that, uh, R.E. Bruce Springsteen, you know. And uh-huh. so I thought, okay, that's a good one, man. i got to think of one. From a Debbie Gold, yeah. You know, Tom, you know Debbie Gold. <laughs> you New know. Yorker. Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm, you know, so I'm trying to think of how I'm going to top Springsteen, you know, and a couple of days goes by and... and uh, the girl from the front office actually walks in the door of the studio and, and says, hey, you know, there's a... I was just wondering if you got my message the other day. That girl, Debbie Gold, is on the phone. Again. So I'm thinking, man, he's getting really elaborate with this. <laughs> and uh, so she goes, no, really, there's, a, there's somebody named Debbie Gold on the phone. And, and sure enough, it was, you know, this, this gal ringing... Uh, about the Springsteen gig, and it, as it happens, he he was just around the corner at some studio, just around the corner from where we were working. Oh, really? Uh, holding a jam session, and wanted to know if I wanted to come over. Well, how how did Bruce, you know, discover you, and what was, you know, how, how did he discover you? That was uh, through a, a guy that I had not met at that time, uh, who has since become a, a good friend, uh, a great guy. Uh, you. You've probably seen him if you watch uh, American Idol to Randy Jackson. Oh, yeah. Uh, he he uh, had been playing on Bruce's record, and I think they probably offered him the tour, and, and he had just taken on a post over at uh, Sony Music, I think, or, or MCA or one of those labels, and, mm-hmm. and just, you know, touring just wasn't in the cards for him. And, and for whatever reason, known to only God and Randy... <laughs> Uh, when they asked him, you know, who he might recommend, he just made this sort of off-handed remark. Well, my my favorite bass player right now is Tommy Sims, you know. <laughs> and uh, I, you know, I, I the first thing I asked him when I met him a year later uh, during a break from the Springsteen tour is, how in the world <laughs> did you even know? I mean, how did you know me? How did you know who I? You know, I mean, how did you even know? about me, you know, where, where did that come from? And, and he just denied the whole thing. You know? <laughs> <laughs> he did, he just was like, oh man, you know, I, man, I don't know, you know, I don't know if I, I don't know if I recommended you or not, you know, I recommend a lot of guys, you know. Man, I was really drunk, you know, and I just, <laughs> that's the first name I thought of, you know? <laughs> you know. To this day, I mean, we've become great friends, but to this day, he will not take, you know, full on, uh, you know, credit for that but but uh, springsteen's manager told me at, at one point that it was randy That's cool. he said randy spoke so highly of you that we had to track you down wow and uh and you were right around the corner and i was right around the corner i literally walked to the studio That's great. from where i was so was it that same day you walked over there no it was uh uh it was a couple days later uh-huh. a couple days later yeah i, I uh you know Got, got a night off from uh, gaming and, and walked over there with my guitar and and uh, we jammed with a uh, Roy Bitten from from the E Street Band and Bruce mm-hmm. and and uh, there was a, a drummer that uh, didn't wind up touring with us uh, a, a 
great drummer that, that there that night. And, and we just jammed into the night, and he played us a bunch of songs from, from his yet-to-be-released. Uh, he had made two records at the time, actually, and, and he played us a bunch of tunes from it. And, and I, I just, you know, I just thought, man, what a vibe, you know? Mm-hmm, what a yeah. cool vibe. And at that time, that's what he was planning to do with that tour, because it wasn't the E Street thing. He was he was planning to go completely stripped down, just four people: guitar, bass, drums, and and uh, and uh, himself. So it was two oh. guitars, bass, and drums. And we were we were going to do the whole tour that way. We did about the first three months or so like that, and did uh, a couple TV shows and this and that and the other, and then. Uh, all of a sudden, all these other people started showing up. So I, I guess maybe we weren't cutting it as a as a small <laughs> combo or something. <laughs> well, that seems interesting because his music, you know, is is a pretty complex. You know, going even going deep into his catalog, you know, it's yeah, it's a it's lot of instrumentation music. and it's it seems re- very diverse and complex. Yeah, it's big. You know, he he always always had that E Street band. You know, right. he's always had that thirteen guys or whatever. Yeah, you know, on the stage, you know, so it's always had this real grand feeling to mm-hmm. it, and that, that's who he is as a performer. You mm-hmm. know? So now the newer stuff at that time, you know, the, the stuff that he was getting ready to release, it had that real sort of hard driving, straight ahead yeah, edge right. to it. But you know, uh, on the record, like he had like these like kind of almost gospel style, gospel style background vocals and stuff on the yeah. record. And I thought, man, how are we going to pull all that off with the four of us? Uh, but the shows that we did, stripped down, were some of my favorite shows, you know, with, with him uh, on that tour. Because it, it had a real hard edge to it, you know, mm-hmm. real driving thing. Uh, but it was fun when, when all the singers and stuff showed up, too. You know. Did you primarily play on his live shows, or did you ever have an opportunity to lay down tracks on any of his records? We did over that couple of years, you know, we made a couple records, you know, we made the Philadelphia record together, and, mm-hmm. and uh, he was uh, kind enough to ask me to come in and co-produce that with him, and uh, we made we made what was going to be another, uh, another uh, Springsteen record, cut about 15, 16 songs, one of which was a song called Secret Garden, which mm-hmm. wound up in the Jerry Maguire movie. That's right. Uh, but he wound up sort of scrapping that album to, to put out a, a, a greatest hits album and he put four of the tunes that, that we'd cut uh, it was kind of a little bit of a, a bummer because he put four of the tunes on there mm-hmm. that we'd recorded together but they were listed they were they were billed to the E Street Band you know, oh, really? on, on the uh, greatest hits record but but you know still it was just you know it was a joy to work with him and we did a couple of other sort of little one-off recordings right. together, one for Curtis Mayfield tribute record, and and I got to produce that one with him, and so it was a lot of fun. Let's turn the tables a little bit, and from Bruce's, uh, let's say he's he's in a room, how, how deep did he go into Tommy Sims' mind? In other words, a col- I'm talking about collaboration here. Were there times where you can... Actually, uh, I mean, granted, he's a he's an amazing writer as it is. And you know what? In my early years, I really wasn't much of a you know Springsteen fan, but now that I I can sit still for a minute, you know, I can start appreciating what he was saying and his music. Yeah, you know? yeah. No, you, I, I share that with you. You know, I, I really wasn't, but yeah. now I look at it and there's there's a certain depth there. But did he realize that you were a writer too? And how deep did your collaboration go as a partnership? 
He did. He, you know, he seemed to be aware of uh, some of the work uh, that I had done, mm-hmm. and, and you know, I'm, I'm sure that was just a part of the homework process. Uh, he's a very studied guy. I'll say that first. Right. Uh, Springsteen knows. I thought I knew a lot about music historically. I mean, I grew up. You know, my father was sort of more of a historian than a. I mean, he wasn't a musician actually. He was. He was like a music librarian. Wow. Uh, he had a, a room in the house that was just purely for music. I mean, it had his his big console style stereo in there, and 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 three walls just lined with albums mm-hmm. and forty fives. And so, fortunately, I got to sort of get my education from that. And 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 he he was uh, he was the kind of guy that would he collected all styles. Uh, you know. I mean, you know, he he loved everything, and and he would put a record on and, and commence to talk through the entire record. You know, tell, telling you the history of the artist and you know why this record wasn't as popular as a couple of records ago, and you know all these different things. And so I got a lot. I thought I knew a lot about music by the time <laughs> I'd, I'd met Springsteen. <laughs> that guy is like a historian. I mean, yeah, he, really. He studied every act out there. I mean, to the most obscure. Like you know, sold you know twenty copies gospel artists from the forties. Wow! You know, right on into you know modern music, uh-huh. and uh, loved every style. Had a real appreciation and affinity for every style of music. Yeah, and uh, so he was a studied guy. I mean, he knew he knew you know he knew his stuff. Yeah, and, and uh, you know he he and I hit it off on that level because we were both hardcore music fans first. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we were trading, you know, we were sparring almost, you know, yeah. uh, the whole time, you know, mm-hmm. with, well, you know about this record? Yeah, I, 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 what do you know about this record? You know, and, and uh, that was a lot of fun because we'd pull out these old gems and then we'd, we'd uh, the encore started turning into, you know, these impromptu launch launches into into some of these tunes we've been you know these old tunes we've been jamming on you know? right a couple of weeks ago I turned on the television and I and I saw this neatest it was a program it was like an MTV but I think it was an MTV show but it was uh, something where the artist sings his songs and stops and then tells you what the lines are. I mean, uh, and, and it was Bruce Springsteen. Uh, I flipped the channel. He was there on stage, and he was he was literally singing a song by himself, acoustic guitar. You know his uh, his uh, you know his phenomenal harmonica on his neck, and he'd sing a couple lines, and then he'd stop and he'd say, "Well." This means this because this and this, and then he'd sing a couple more lines. Wow! And it was have you have you seen this program at all? I've never seen. I'm gonna that. have to find it and send it to you. It's a wonderful thing. I think the artists and, and there's a couple rappers uh, that have done this. Huh. I know that, but it's a really phenomenal. Uh, it was on a high def channel that I that I have, and it was phenomenal. He was actually telling the story about his own writing and the song. He went over to the piano, did the same thing he played, and he described the emotion and what it really means you know and it was a, a, a very um uh introspective type of uh program it's a really really program called uh might be something like music and poetry the poetry of the musician or something okay and uh i'll hook you up with that later on but it, it's really yeah. worth watching it was wow very, yeah but, uh, it was really that. cool i would love to have seen that one on springsteen because yeah, yeah. you know really for me it was just 
education, you know. I, feel, I felt like being around him for three or four years, I now was starting to learn the art of songwriting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I, there's a distinct sort of before and after picture of my songwriting mm-hmm. as it concerns Springsteen. I mean, I, I learned uh, that was like going to the master's class, you know. Right. Uh, being around that guy and, and being exposed to his songs that, that up front, you know, that close uh, every night and, and uh, being able to just sit around and talk with him about, mm-hmm. you know, the art of it, you know, and, and, and the essence of it. And, and I was, you know, around when he was writing the lyrics to uh, Streets of Philadelphia. And, mm-hmm. You know, and it was like, man, it just showed me that other place that, that a songwriter can go to to, yeah. to speak an emotion and have you feel the emotion uh, without even, I guess, having to over-explain yourself. You know? <laughs> I understand what you mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it was an education. Uh, more than anything, being, cool. being on tour with him was, was, was education. Oh, I'll bet. Hey, speaking of uh, writing, let's, let's talk award-winning writing. Yeah, really. And in 96, you collaborated with uh, Gordon Kennedy and Wayne Kirkpatrick and uh, penned the hit Change the World. Right. And, you know, that was, that was a huge hit. And obviously uh, it won Song of the Year and I think Record of the Year for Eric Clapton. Sure. How did it happen that you wrote this song? And, and were you working on an album for someone else at that time? Or? Well, yeah, we, we were uh, – the song itself had been around, you know, for a few years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, it, it was one of those things where I'd, I'd had it sitting around, and I just, you know, like a, like so many songs, just kind of didn't know what to do with it. And, mm-hmm. and, and it was, you know, in its original form, quite a sort of more social commentary song than than, than ultimately what Cla- the version Clapton wound up doing. Right. Uh, but but uh, the story of it, uh, at least as I can best remember it, is that. Uh, Gordon and Wayne, my two co-writers on it, mm-hmm. had a band at the time called the Mute Brutes of Labor, uh, <laughs> and and you know it, it was really just it was really a band of just Gordon and Wayne, but the, we sort of rounded it out. A buddy of mine uh, who now plays for Keith Urban, Chris, Chris McHugh, uh, and myself, Chris Gordon and I had all played together in Whiteheart, and uh-huh. so we were sort of. You know, Gordon sort of drafted us to come in and sort of be the, uh, I guess, the, the fifth and sixth Beatle, if you will, in, in, in this group. And, and uh, they were looking for tunes. And, 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 you know, so Gordon and I had been writing tunes together for, for years by, by this point. And mm-hmm. I sat down and played him this tune that I had, you know, uh, in a very sort of Paul McCartney style, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, and he loved it. You know, right away, because uh, what they were doing was very sort of kind of, you know, almost like a Beatlesque, you know, sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Their, their whole sound and their whole deal was sort of a Beatlesque sort of thing. So this tune really fit, uh, and it was changed the world. And and, and uh, he said, "Man, I love the tune. I love it, but you know, Wayne might want to take a, a, another look at at some of the lyrics. You know, would you be opposed to us changing up some of the lyrics?" And, I said, well, I, you know, I'm not doing anything with it. You know, it's your band. Why not? You know, and so that's that's sort of where it sort of morphed its way into mm-hmm. the version that Clapton does. You know, uh, they they uh, rewrote the verses on it and recorded it that way, and and uh, you know, we did a demo of it uh, as as the Mute Brutes, and, and that's 
that's what uh, Clapton wound up hearing, you know, because uh, there there was no uh, demo or, or or documentation of the first version, you know. Well, that's what I wanted to ask too: is is how did this wind up in Clapton's lap? I mean, how did he how did he first hear it, and what was the inspiration yeah. for him hearing it? Well, there are different stories on that, you know. Um, but what I recall is that I, I was in the office of uh, my publisher, my, my brand new publisher in L.A. at Interscope, and uh, a guy named Ronnie Vance, uh, who, and we were just, you know, doing what you know new new, new publishers do. You mm-hmm. know, uh, he was, you know, just going through my my catalog of songs and telling me what he liked and what might be improved and this and that and the other, and he got to the changed the world tune and he said you know i love this one uh crazy about this one Mm -hmm. and i've got an idea for this one Uh, and and so the next day you know i show up at his office uh and and we hop in his car and he's i'm gonna i'm gonna take you to meet a friend of mine and and it turns out it was kathy nelson who uh, who runs uh the music uh, division of the disney uh, corporation, well, film okay. corporation, who, who owns Touchstone Pictures and all these other right. um, production companies, and he played the song in her office. Uh, and I don't know if that was for the first time she was hearing it, but it all seemed like it, you know. And, and, and I, I very much kind of thought I was because I was in just signing this publishing deal. I, I thought it was all Hollywood, you know. Uh-huh. Right, I thought it was all yeah. sort of like. I'm from the Midwest where we drive Fords and Chevys, you know. <laughs> and, and I just thought, man, this is how they do it out here in Hollywood. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. I was just going along with it, you know. And she's rave, rat, ranting and raving about this tune and about, you know, her, you know, her Disney having this great movie with John Travolta in it. Phenomenal, that the yeah. song's going to be good for. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I want to I call my friend Eric Clapton and see if he'll get involved and, you know, maybe we can get Babyface involved. And <laughs> I mean, it was just way too many, you know, way too much name dropping for me. And, and, <laughs> yeah, and, and, I, and I just thought, wow, you know, mm-hmm. this is, this is, you know. And she was straight up. And she was just straight down the line, man. I mean, within two weeks of that meeting, uh, you know, I was getting calls, you know, to, to you know, about the tune and about, wow. you know, what key it was in. And, right. What key know, is it in? Uh, they did it in the key of E. In E? Yeah. Because it's got that little progression. I mean, it, so it goes, you know, da 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 It climbs up and it com- climbs back down. Right, and right. And it goes up and forth and it climbs back up and climbs back down. It's it's it, it's 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 all climbing and coming back and climbing further, right, in the progressions. Yeah, it's, it's a, really you know, it's, I mean, you know, I've, I've, it, it's an interesting little piece. I, I've, it's one of those things where, you know, I, I, just, I, I just fool around with riffs and, mm-hmm. and never really really think too much about what they're doing but it was a it was it's fun hearing it come back to you like that you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. i didn't think much of the song to be quite honest right. in in the uh pantheon of songs that i have you know i i thought this one's okay you know even even when ronnie uh my publisher uh was saying hey this this is one of my favorites i i, I was kind of like and you know, I think I've had better songs, man. And I think there's better songs. And, and you know, I think you'll you'll keep listening through the tape, and you'll you'll see songs that you like. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a great song. It's, it's beautiful. And yeah. and, and uh, I think the first time I heard it was when I saw the movie Phenomenon, and I just was floored by it. I just thought it was beautiful. You know, 
when I saw it in the movie, I mean, it was like I was listening to somebody else's song. Right. You know? yeah. I mean, you know, with the storyline of the movie, which I thought was great, and uh-huh. the, the, where they positioned the song in the movie, right. uh, all of a sudden, I was thinking, hey, this is the greatest song I've ever written. You know, it's that whole, you know, presentation and, and perception thing, I guess, but... Mm-hmm. but I bought that soundtrack, and I, I listened to that song endlessly. I just loved it. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Hey, I've got a question. You, you, you spoke a little while ago of um, there being a turning point in your writing. Remember we were talking about uh, Springsteen, and by the, you know, all of a sudden writing became something else, and there is definitely a turning point of uh, your creative writing. And uh, my question is, you know, your 2000 release of your solo album, Peace and Love, was that a turning point before that? Did you approach Peace and Love as a new approach to how you put words and music together? Well, that that project is interesting because there's three or four songs on it that date back to, uh, there's at least one song on it that dates back to my teens. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Um, there's a couple of songs, two or three of them that date back to, you know, before my connection to Springsteen. And then I, I know that, I, you know, just as I was thinking I, I was done with the record, yeah. uh, I wrote a batch of about seven or eight songs, literally the week that I was supposed to uh, start mixing. Wow. <laughs> and uh, it was during a particularly, uh, particularly rough time uh, for me. And uh, I'm married with, with three kids, but at the time I, I thought that our marriage was, was unraveling and it was pretty much over. And these... This little batch of songs that I wrote had everything to do with, with what was going on at the time uh, with all of that. And uh, I thought, well, there's, there's three or four of these that, I, that will never see the light of day because I just can't, you know, uh, just, it was just too hurtful to, to, uh, to really, it was just, it was just an exercise in, in, in therapy to write them, mm-hmm, you know. Right. Uh, I didn't ever intend to sing them anywhere publicly, uh, mm-hmm. and and uh, but there were two or three, maybe four of those songs that definitely felt like I need to record these. And then, as it turned out, you know, there were a couple of the ones that I did never intend to, you know, sort of unravel uh, that I recorded. So the the last seven things I recorded for the album came from that batch, mm-hmm. and uh, you know. They were definitely sort of the post-Springsteen, you know, uh, tell the truth no matter what in, in the song. Because that's what I'd learned from him. I, I, what, I, what I got from him was no matter what it costs you, tell the truth mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. the song. Uh, you know, don't, don't, don't sugarcoat it. And, right. And don't... Uh, you know, don't cheat the, the customer. Right. Don't cheat the listener. You know. Well, you know, it's it's, it's a, the reason I'm bringing up that project is because, you know, I've listened to <laughs> I listen to a lot of music, and Rick does too. Uh, he's an engineer, and and we 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 sort of devour music. And when we uh, I got uh, you know a hold of your album, and it's in a, it's an amazing collection of songs, by the way. I mean, there's R and B, and you know, uh, gospel, it's pop, a little bit of folk. It's all rolled really tenderly into one album and I really I really uh, encourage our, our listeners 
to to really pick up this album because there, I don't think there's a a, a, a non listenable. You know, <laughs> some albums are some cuts are not listenable. Some are listenable. Every cut in this album is listenable, and oh, it's, uh, and there's a deep story there. But I'm the perennial R and B and funk groove type of guy, so I naturally migrated to like songs like 100, New Jam, Peace and Love. You know, right, right. But you know, but there were a couple songs like you know, it, it don't matter to the sun, right? That, yeah, that were just really deep. I mean, Rick, you were talking to me about that the other day. Oh, that, it don't matter to the sun. I I, I love that. It's 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 beautiful. And Thank uh, you. I, didn't that song appear on one of the Grey's Anatomy episodes too? It did. Yeah, in fact, it did. Uh, uh, there, there was a and uh, there's an indie artist, mm-hmm. uh, Rosie something, uh, and I'm just basing on her name here. Okay. Let's see, that's where the memory starts. Hopefully, it's not O'Donnell. <laughs> no, it wasn't O'Donnell. <laughs> yeah, she, sang, she sang a little bit better than Rosie O'Donnell. <laughs> Rosie Greer? No. <laughs> sang a little bit better than Rosie Greer, too. <laughs> yeah, but she's a really, really uh, interesting uh, interesting artist in that she's almost sort of a humorist singer-songwriter, and uh, uh, I, I really like her music. That's why I'm, I'm, I'm just mad at myself that I cannot think of her last oh. name because... <laughs> I think this is music that your listeners would enjoy, okay. mm-hmm. but but uh, uh, I do know that you can go to uh, you know wherever you can go on the internet and the Grey's Anatomy episodes and, and find out about the artists that are doing the tunes. Mm-hmm. She yeah. she did a version of the song, uh, unbeknownst to me, she did a version of the song on on one of her albums, and and uh, they used that uh, version in, in in the show. Okay. Yeah. By the way, I I, I can. Uh there's no better voice that you could have put into the the cut "Peace and Love" than Shannon Sanders. Um, oh man, yeah. Um, I, I don't think there's anybody else that could have done that. You know, no, that you're right. Lies, you're right. Your deep groove on the on the tracks, and I you're mean, right. that was just it was genius. The, I, I think that may be the smartest thing I I did on the album was was put Shannon on it. Yeah, uh, he he is uh, an absolute brilliant brilliant uh, musician and singer and and. And producer, musician uh, in his own right. I mean, he's, yeah. he's great, and, and he's he's burning it up. He, yeah, he is turning it up. And, and then you had this unknown artist by the name of Stevie Wonder, who, yeah, who, who laid does that? <laughs> who yeah, laid down his that, uh, signature? Maybe, that may be the second most brilliant thing <laughs> I did on the album. Close to bring Stevie in. <laughs> do you have a Do you have a pretty close relationship with Stevie? Not a Not a super close relationship. Yeah. No, I, I uh, Stevie's a, a great humanitarian and all the more so to young musicians Man, uh-huh. he just took me under his wing and really made me feel you know uh, really really special and, and and agreed to do that piece and uh and and you know we've been in touch a few times uh since then and and you know just one of those guys that just always makes you feel great mm-hmm. uh and and uh he's a real you know what you see is what you get. You know he's a, right. he really is that guy. You know. Well, did you ever have an opportunity to reciprocate and lend your bass talents to any of his projects? No, not not yet. But not yet? you know, I'm I'm hoping mm-hmm. uh, he's still young and I'm still young. So you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping the day might come. You know, yeah. we've talked about it though. We've talked yeah, about it. he has a pretty. Uh, I mean, one of my bass heroes is is Stevie's longtime bassist, uh, Nick Nate Watts. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so you know, I mean, it's 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 one of those things where you know, as long as you got Nate Watts, what, who else do you need? Yeah, who do you need, right? 
<laughs> hey, listen, me and uh, me and Rick are big fans of Michael McDonald, and I know you've had a chance to work with him over the on countless occasions. But uh, in fact, right before the interview, I was telling Rick, you know what? I I remember this compilation. Uh, it, it was a tribute. To, uh, I, was this the Michael McDonald tribute with Jeff Bridges, Rick? Yeah, and uh, uh, you were on that, right? Yeah, you are there. You made a uh, thing Edwin McCain and a couple Edwin other people, McCain, a bunch of other people. Yeah, and you you were on stage with him, and I can't recall uh, if you sang a song with him on that DVD or not. But we I really did. Enjoyed we sang that. a tune together that we that we'd written and recorded for uh-huh. his his album at that time. Uh, a song called "All I Need." That's yeah. right, right, right. Yeah, very Motownish kind of song. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I tell you, Michael really jumped into the Motown, didn't he, with the two or three albums after that? Yeah, it was it was it was interesting because that you know that was a whatever it was that was six seven years before he did the Motown records. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. And, uh, but you know, I, I guess you know, I guess it got him in the mood, you know. So. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but that just shows that you know you going back to almost the very beginning of our interview, where you have not really. F- you know, put yourself in a in a box or a niche. Um, I mean, you've worked with Michael, you've worked with Stevie, you've worked with Springsteen. Um, it's been even a wild on, ride, man. You know, and, and you didn't you work on Kelly Clarkson's uh, project a little bit? Tell us what I you did, did on that. Yeah. His, her first uh, project, well, uh, and I can't remember. I can't think of the name. Of it's it. thankful. Thankful. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, uh, we got to do some work with her. We were initially working with with Kelly. Uh, on a on a pretty day to day basis, and, and through, a, through a huge uh, regime shift uh, over there at RCA, uh, we sort of got ousted, uh, and, and our whole team of people, uh, the the, uh, the the outgoing uh, president of the label, uh, every every everybody he was sort of working with at the time creatively, uh, sort of. We're just, uh, I guess, what do they call it, uh, uh, collateral, you know, right. mm-hmm. uh, 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 collateral damage or whatever they call that. Uh, uh, when when uh, Clive Davis, the great Clive Davis, came in and, and took over, and he had all of his own team sure. of people that that he that he uh, you know was bringing in. So uh, the Kelly the Kelly Clarkson project was bittersweet, you know, because it was it was a fun project. Sure. And, and I thought she was a fantastic singer, and I always thought she'd be a great, a great star. I thought mm-hmm. the, I thought the public would would receive her exactly as they have, mm-hmm. and uh, you know. But it's just one of those things where you know, was, you know, the, the timing and and, uh, and like I said, you know, with the regime change, you know, I, I was associated with the old regime. And this industry is about timing, isn't it? A lot of it. Yeah, so much of it is that kind of thing, you know. I mean, if you're a part of this guy's, you know, team or that guy's team, and you know, everything's always changing. At that time, it seems like label heads were changing, you know, like like socks, you know. <laughs> uh, at that time, you know, I mean, one one guy would be in for two years, and then he'd he'd get his thirty million dollar umbrella to to leave the office, and the new guy come in, and, right. and fire everybody that was working with right. with the old guy just out of fear, you know, mm-hmm. just out of, you know, uh, whatever, the, the necessity to to totally be sure that, you know, there's no hard feelings and, and, and you know, no fallout, you know. Right. Uh, so, 
it happens a lot, you know. Well, hey, Tommy, we've taken up a lot of your time, and we appreciate it. But I've got one more question, and it's just looking ahead to 2007 and, and want to know what kind of projects you're going to be working yeah. on and what, what you have lined up this year. Yeah, Man, it's a great year. Uh, you know, this will, be the, this will be the year we launch our label. Uh, this will be the year that we launch uh, at least one artist. Uh, we're, 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 we're possibly going to launch two artists this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so it's a great year. I mean, that's that's where that's where we are now. You know, uh, we're still doing, uh, you know, still doing, you know, the, the independent producer gigs and, and those types of things. But mm-hmm. my heart is in, you know, my heart is in breaking, you know, some of our own talent. You know, sure. trying to see if we can get it out there and uh, just continue to help, you know, help kids that want to make great music, help them make great music. And, right. And, you know, we we, you know, those are the, you know, the the blessing uh, is that those are the calls that we get when we get a call. We get a call from somebody who's wanting to make music and not, right. and not just a trendy record. And mm-hmm. so, uh, it, it's been a real blessing to sort of find ourselves in that seat. You know, uh, and so you know, we're just we're just we've got we've got about eight or nine records coming out this year. That's great. You know. That's awesome. Is there any? Uh, is there a special website that uh, you'd like to, to to plug a little bit for our listeners? Is there anything that uh, that that's there yet, or not really? Not up yet, but okay. we're in, it's in the it's in it's it is now officially, uh, as they say, under construction. Okay. So yeah, there'll be and it'll be a Positive Movement Inc. Uh, will be the site. Positive Movement Inc. Uh, that's awesome. And uh, you know, it, you'll 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 be able to catch up on all all of the. Uh, different projects and things that we're doing. That's wonderful. Yeah. Well, hopefully uh, we'll have a chance to, uh, maybe down the road, you know, this year we'll have a chance to talk to you again and catch up and see how things are going. I would love it, yeah. Okay. I would love to, man. Well, best best wishes to you, Tommy, and, and good luck this year. Thanks, guys. I appreciate the holler. Thanks for being with us, okay? You bet. All right. Take care now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Special thanks to Tommy Sims for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. Our goal is to bring you a new podcast once every other week, so be sure to check your podcast downloads for the next episode of Inside Music Cast. If you have a question or a suggestion for the show, please drop us an email at input at insidemusiccast.com. That's input at insidemusiccast.com with one C. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Stay subscribed to Inside Music Cast, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for downloading Inside Music Cast, the podcast devoted to the musicians, fans, and the people who make the music business happen. Your subscription is appreciated, so be sure to check your podcatcher for our next episode. You can also visit InsideMusicCast.com for additional content. If you'd like to contact us via email, the address is input at InsideMusicCast.com.